I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. That's wit.fm. Space exploration allows us to understand our place in the universe. Natalia Bailey, CEO and founder at Axion Systems, is on a mission to accelerate the exploration of space. We talked about satellite propulsion and advancements to make it more accessible. Natalia explained the different types of propulsion technologies, such as chemical propulsion and electric propulsion. We also talked about the process of developing a hardware product for space. Natalia completed her doctorate in space propulsion at MIT, where she helped invent the first working prototype of an ion engine technology for small satellites. She also has a master's in science from Duke University and a bachelor's in science in aerospace engineering from San Diego State University. In 2019, Natalia was a recipient of the Emerging Technologist Abby Award. Abby Awards are presented by anirabi.org, a global nonprofit with a goal of reaching 50-50 gender equity in tech by 2025. Abbey Awards honor and celebrate women who have led technical innovations and made a notable impact on business or society through technology. This episode is part of a series of shows that highlight the work of previous Abbey Award winners. For more information about the Abbey Awards, go to anitab.org. Before we continue with the interview, I wanted to invite you to check out our latest podcast, The 5-Minute Mentor. In this podcast, you'll get advice from prominent engineers, authors, writers, and more in five minutes or less. Check it out by going to mentors.fm or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching for 5-Minute Mentor. Thank you. Natalia Bailey. CEO and founder at Axion Systems is joining us today. Natalia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the show, and you're the winner of the Emerging Technologies Abby Award winner, so congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Today, we're going to talk about satellites and satellite propulsion technologies that are used for exploring space. I want to begin with your time as a kid when you would spend nights in your backyard and in Oregon looking at the stars. And I also saw you were really into aliens. Can you talk a bit about this time in your life? Yes. Yeah, like you mentioned, I would sleep on my trampoline. And it started out with me just looking at the stars and being in awe by the sheer number of them. And I actually liked the feeling of maybe insignificance that I got from that which might sound kind of weird, but uh, then I started realizing that some of the stars were moving and they weren't airplanes, clearly. They weren't twinkling, but they looked like little pinpoints and they would move across the sky. And I looked up on the internet what that could be and I realized that it was the, I was seeing the International Space Station and second and third stages of rockets that had yet to deorbit and burn up in the atmosphere. And that took me from just the philosophical ponderings about aliens to thinking more about rockets and the space station. I've applied to be an astronaut a couple of times and haven't made it very far. That's interesting. So since a, a kid, you're 
fascinated by this area of space and yes yeah and you went on to study aerospace engineering can you give a quick overview of what this consists of sort of what are the things that you look at yes aerospace engineering typically means both the uh, types of propulsion and structures and vehicles that operate in air and also in space. So you could be an aerospace engineer and work on a jet or a part of a jet, or you could be an aerospace engineer and work on something to do with a spacecraft. And so that's where I focus. So there's no air in that part. So it's all happening in space. And that career major can look like um, orbital dynamics, where you're looking at the movement of bodies relative to one another in space. Uh, it can look like space propulsion, which is what I did, uh, and, and many other engineering and science disciplines. Yes, and like you just mentioned, propulsion, and this is an area you're focusing heavily a lot. Your company does a lot in this domain. What does propulsion mean in the context of space? For space, it can mean two things. The first is launch. So propulsion and rockets used to move a spacecraft from Earth into orbit. And then it can also mean the engines used for any sort of maneuvering after that point. So typically a rocket would drop a spacecraft off in orbit and then the in-space propulsion would take over from that point. And that's where I focused. In-space propulsion, right. okay. And the other one that people might think of is the propulsion to get a rocket out in space, yes. is that correct? that's the one that looks exciting because everything's on fire and it's loud. Yeah, I guess also because you can see it here on Earth. Yes, exactly. And specifically, you're working on propulsion of satellites, small satellites to be more specific. What is a satellite? The word satellite really means something that's orbiting another body. So the moon is a satellite of the Earth. So when we use that term, though, we typically mean a spacecraft that's orbiting the Earth. Oftentimes it can be focused at the Earth, have a camera or a radio that's pointed at the Earth, or it could be focused more outwards doing some sort of observation or science mission. And what are some of the applications of satellites? Why are they useful? Well, for example, I used a satellite, you know, to get from the airport to this convention center. So GPS is a big one. Dish TV, so satellite TV, Sirius radio. Those are things that we have today because of satellites. And then there's there are a lot of applications that involve imaging the Earth for science and also um, commercial applications as well, like taking pictures of crops to predict yields for the next year and things like that. Are there specific applications of small satellites? Like, is there something they're particularly good at? Yes. So there is kind of a natural bucket that they would fall into. So if you use small satellites versus one large satellite, for example, that means that you have more spacecraft up in orbit, and typically that also means that they're spread out in orbit more. So just by nature of taking one large satellite and breaking it down into many smaller satellites, you essentially end up with more coverage. So things like communication, you could now do uh, broadband, so two-way communication rather than broadcast from one large satellite. 
Earlier we were talking about propulsion and sort of the in-space propulsion, which happens, like its name says, in space, and it's in charge of moving objects there, and also the one where people get to see from Earth. What are the different ways in which propulsion can be done, like at a high level? What are the main ideas behind them? The two main ways of achieving propulsion, which really means it's all based on the conservation of momentum. It's ways to get matter pushed out the back of the engine to push the spacecraft forward. And there are two main ways of doing that. The first is chemical, and that's like those big visceral rockets everybody thinks of. So that's a combustion reaction. And then those hot gases are pushed out the back of the rocket, and that's what propels the rest of the rocket forward. And then the other main way is using electrical energy, so electric propulsion and getting energy from solar panels, so the sun or batteries, and using that energy to accelerate matter out the back of the spacecraft. But in this case, that matter is usually a charged particle. I see. And you focus more on the electric propulsion, yes, right? Yes, that's right. Okay. When I was researching for this, I saw that one of the main components is the ion engine. Can you explain the idea behind the ion engine? Yes. So we'll start again back at conservation of momentum. So again, our goal is to accelerate something out the back of the ion engine. And in the case of, of that type of propulsion, that something is ions. So you start with neutral atoms, though. They're not ionized quite yet. And you inject them into the chamber of the engine. And then you also have to inject some really high energy particles like electrons that can collide with those neutral atoms and ionize them. Now you've created a bunch of ions, and now those ions are passed through an, an electric field and accelerated out the back of the spacecraft. Is there a reason why you would use electric propulsion for in-space versus chemical? Yes. The fuel efficiency is the main reason you'd use electric propulsion over chemical. The efficiency in going from electrical energy to kinetic is much better than going from chemical to kinetic on the order of 10 to 100 times. And the real impact of that to someone that wants to launch a satellite is that they can carry much less fuel if they use electric propulsion. We've been talking about satellites and propulsion and different types of propulsion. I want to talk now about your company, Axion Systems, which focuses on the in-space propulsion. Can you explain in more detail what the company is doing? Yes. So the company was founded out of mine and my lab mates' graduate research. And initially, we had a lot of work to do to get the technology from the university lab stage into a working prototype and then into a real product that we could sell to customers. And our ultimate goal is to do a lot of that, making products and, and selling them to folks on the commercial side and on the government and science side. And eventually we hope to do in-space propulsion for every size of spacecraft and satellite and to do it in a way that really opens up space to the whole world. So that makes satellites affordable and accessible to everyone. And the company has so far spent many more years in that initial R&D and prototype phase than we had planned for, but we've learned a lot and have just now kind of started to emerge from that phase into a more commercial phase of the company. Mm -hmm. If you were starting again, what would be some of those learnings or things that you would 
take into account from, you know, coming from academia to starting to think in terms of a product? Do you think there's anything that could have been optimized? Yes. Two things come to mind. The type of funding you take early on really kind of predetermines a lot of things for the company. And given how much fundamental science and research was still involved that we needed to do, we probably should have spent a little bit longer taking government money to mature the technology and not venture capital right away. Mm -hmm. So we'll see how that all plays out. And then the other one is... I think we didn't realize early on because we came out of a lab where, you know, your test setups can sometimes be a little cobbled together and nothing's really designed with manufacturability or repeatability in mind. And what I probably would have spent more time on is building more of the machine to test the machines and build them more repeatably because we still spent a couple years with a kind of research lab mentality. So you're saying that one of the things you would have is a process to be able to, you're developing and along the way have some quality assurance, something that can be repeatable? Yes, quality assurance and also just thinking about how do we accelerate bottlenecks because a lot of the bottlenecks you face early on are really just because of cash you need to spend more to duplicate your test setup to be able to run two tests at a time instead of just one. And I was maybe a little bit too conservative on our spending in the beginning. You know, I don't know, maybe our investors would disagree with that. But I learned a little bit more about, you know, what are truly things that just take time and what are problems that could be sped up by us investing more in them. And I would have spent more on the latter. Mm-hmm. And earlier we were talking about how Axion Systems is also looking at making this technology of in-space propulsion more accessible. What are some of the things that can help it be more accessible? A big one is in manufacturing. So the space industry is used to designing and building things that only ever need to be built once. Uh, and so you can imagine If that's the case, you can throw in all sorts of specialized processes and materials and people and because it's never going to need to happen again. But we're seeing this shift in the industry where instead of one satellite, folks want to launch 5,000 or 12,000 even. And so that's a very different mentality. And so we you know, saw the stirrings of this happening early on and so took that into account in our design for manufacturing. And we have really very common processes so we can slot into any manufacturing line, things like that. I want to switch gears a little bit and, and talk about your career a little bit. One thing that I saw was that in a previous interview, you mentioned you started tinkering with hardware until you were in college. Some people might think like, oh, you know, you're, you're a kid, you're fascinated with space and you're building hardware now that probably you were already like tinkering with hardware as a kid, but you weren't. Can you Talk a bit about how you onboarded into this tinkering with hardware in college. Sort of what led you to, to start doing it? Um, very clumsily, I would have to say. I think the first project was Design Build Fly, AIAA competition, where you, as a team of students, you build an aircraft that has to complete these different challenges, like dropping tennis balls on a field somewhere. And so I decided to 
just dive into that. And I was excited to start rolling up my sleeves and I hit some resistance and instead was assigned the report to write that. Um, But then my second year going back, I was able to be more hands-on and to start learning and doing things like taking the computer design that we had done and then starting to cut out and assemble the pieces and so on. So that was neat to go from the computer aspect and design that I was more used to, to seeing that take form in real life. And then, uh, but that was very rough on the team. I'm like, and the screwdriver is which one? So it was, you know, I think I've just never been afraid of asking for help and just trying and recognizing, you know, being Mm self-aware. And like you're saying, this happened because you're in a team and I assume, you know, at the beginning, they're like, who knows how to do this and that? And then you didn't have experience. So therefore you were assigned the report, but you were like, wanted to get hands-on experience in hardware, right? Yeah. And, you know, that was my priority, but the team had a priority and a schedule to finish this thing. So it made sense. So later on, you mentioned you were taking a class and also you were just learning on it from your own initiative or? Yeah. um, So no formal class there, but, you know, watching videos online and asking some of the seniors who had been with the project for several years for help, maybe outside of the time that was supposed to be specifically for that project, things like that. That's awesome. Now I want to talk about completely different thing. Your time working with X Factor Ventures, and this is an investment as an investment partner. Can you talk a bit about what X Factor Ventures is? Yes. So X Factor Ventures is uh, a women-led VC fund, the brainchild of uh, one of the partners, Chip Hazard at Flybridge. And the whole point is to, you know, start to tip the scales in the on the entrepreneurship side um, to even out the the gender imbalance there because it's it's pretty bad right now and so we're we're hoping to fund uh, companies that have at least one female founder and that have really big ideas and so in that way we can train more women entrepreneurs but we're also we're learning as we go too so we're also being trained ourselves as female venture capitalists as well, which there's also a huge shortage of women in in VC. And so we're several female investing partners. We're all currently working at our own full-time ventures. And so we're doing this in our copious amounts of free time. And I'm in particular focusing on the science and hardware companies that come in. In your opinion, what are some of the challenges that minorities face like women when they're looking for funding is there anything that that you've seen talking to people that are onboarding with us x-factor ventures or yeah this one's always hard mm-hmm. it'd be better if there were like more blatant blatantly obvious reasons i think it's more just like the activation energy to get people used to seeing and investing in women it's just unknown yeah catches, you know, male VCs off guard. They're not used to looking at some of the same types of industries that some of these women are starting companies around. So I think, I hope that the number one reason is just that it's unknown territory. And and so that can be a challenge. Uh, Yeah. And what kind of advice is provided to founders that, you know, are part of X Factor Ventures or any kind of venture? Well, for us in particular, 
because we're all currently running our own businesses and we're only, you know, six months to five years ahead of the women we're investing in, we're really rolling up our sleeves and and getting in there with them. So there's not really any one size fits all advice, but it's Mm -hmm. more like we really think you need to sort out this legal battle with your co-founder before you try to raise this round. Let me talk to your lawyer and see, you know, where we're at. So it's a little bit of like, here's the formula we've seen work for us. uh, So let us share that with you so that you know it going in. And what are some examples of industries where you've seen uh, women starting companies? All over the place. So a lot of consumer packaged goods. Uh, We're seeing a lot of kind of community-focused companies. I've been looking personally at energy storage and quantum computing, but those aren't the majority of the companies we're seeing. Um, But really, I'm surprised at kind of how broad the areas are, which I think is great. You were the winner of the Emerging Technologies Abbey Award. In what ways has this had an impact in your career? Has it had an impact? Yes. I mean, for me personally, it's been a bit of a kick in the pants to realize that, you know, I have only won this award because I can name very specific people that have gone out of their way to help me um, throughout my career and that now I'm like, oh, wait, now I could be doing that. And so it's a nice reminder and it's inspirational for me going forward. And then it also helps a lot with um, fundraising at, at Axion and also I think just visibility into, you know, driving more really awesome candidates to us that we can hopefully work with someday as well. Exactly. And like you also said, this visibility can help, you know, other people get inspired and start companies and seek funding and so on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what would you say to people who are wondering if they should nominate someone? I mean, I would say even just wondering that about somebody is probably a pretty good sign that they're likely deserving of of an award like this. If you felt inspired by them or watched other people be inspired by them, I'd say go for it. Awesome. Well, Natalia, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. 